flying around. Little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits, nice and brown. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Cast iron skillets, good and hot. Watch it steam and crack and pop. Cornbread bacon in that stove. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Pick them maters, good and ripe. Dropping black gang candy stripes. Look at 'em loading down those vines. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Bring it to Tennessee farm table. Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table, a show dedicated to the people of our Appalachian region who produce, prepare, and preserve our local foods and agricultural products. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. Our theme song was graciously sung, arranged, and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee. We are so proud of this talented 14-year-old Tennessee talent. Today we are setting the table with a question: Why do we all eat pinto beans? Today in our Appalachian region, the term soup beans is synonymous with pinto beans. We talk a lot about saving heirloom varieties of beans on this show, and with so many varieties of heirloom beans that have been handed down by Native Americans and kept alive by generations of people living in the mountains, how did pintos become the default bean for the Appalachian table? As told by food writer Ronnie Lundy, it involves coal camps, coal mining, labor riots, the company store, and the loss of the ability to garden, save seed, and maintain food sustainability. Here's that James Beard Award-winning writer Ronnie Lundy to shed some light on this topic. And Ronnie Lundy is the two times James Beard Award-winning food writer and author of Vittles: An Appalachian Journey with Recipes. You know, there's the great mystery of, of why we eat pinto beans, which we don't know the answer to for sure, because pintos are a Mesoamerican southwestern bean. We have a gazillion varieties of beans that could be, you know, those beautiful cranberry beans and the Christmas beans and blah blah blah. You know, and 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 you know, if you had if if you grew up when I did, and you had relatives who were growing their dried beans, your soup beans would be brown or red, but they wouldn't necessarily be pintos, you know. Um, But pintos, Bill Best believes that, um, and Sherry Castle was the person who started trying to track this down, um, and she ended up talking to Bill, and Bill believes that in the Depression, um, uh, pinto beans became like such a commodity, they became so inexpensive compared to the work of planting and growing that people just started substituting pinto beans and they would have been they obviously maybe not obviously they logically would have been the bean that would have been available in work camps in logging camps and in mining stores because those corporations 
who ran those stores would buy the Pintos in bulk, you know, where you wouldn't buy a smaller bean. I mean, the Pintos were the ones that could be grown um, in in the sort of um, more corporate agriculture way, you know, on the bigger farms as opposed to in your small garden. And so they they replaced, they became the bean of, of choice, you know, for people because they were so available and they taste really good, but they're not actually native to Appalachia. Boy, that is edifying. It makes me wonder, too, the life in the mining camp itself, no room for a little garden, no time to tend the garden. Well, let me let me correct some of that for you because here's part, here's a piece of, of what went on yes. in the in the early mining towns, and uh, David Allen Corbin has this book. Here we go: Life, Work, and Rebellion in the Coal Fields. It's terrific. Anyway, when he was writing, so at the time of Blair Mountain, initially there are coal camps, and there is a company store, but the people in the coal camps, the women in the coal camps planted gardens and and they would keep an animal sometimes they keep a milk cow or oh. pig or something like that so they would not be fully dependent on the company store and there's a, a quote in here um, it's in vittles too but one of them the national mine organizers talks about the fact that the miners on strike in Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and Southwest Virginia are better fed and healthier because they have their gardens. Well, what starts to happen then is that when the miners go on strike, the, um, the thugs come in and they throw the family out of their houses, right? That there would be tent camps. People would have their tent camps, but they would also have you know, they would bring their harvest or whatever, but they throw the people, all of their stuff onto the street, and then they destroyed, they broke all the canned goods, and they destroyed the garden, and either confiscated or killed the animals, so that people would not be able to eat. And then, as time went on, you know, as we come into the more modern era, um, you're, first of all, the polluted conditions of the cold camps didn't allow you to have that kind of garden and you didn't have that kind of space. They learned to not give you space so that you would be dependent on the company store, more dependent on the company store. Just absolutely handicap people's ability to feed themselves and much less grow and save right. Christmas beans. Yeah, feed or clothe or, or you know, do anything for themselves, you know? That's such good history to know. Yeah. And it's history that's been suppressed. I mean, it has been consciously, you know, one of the things that I do. We, but when I speak, um, first of all, I usually ask people if they know Blair Mountain. Mm-hmm. And it's astonishing how many people in Appalachia have no idea what I'm talking about. Mm. And to not, I mean, Blair, Blair Mountain should be understood in American history. It is the largest armed labor uprising in the history of the United States. And and it's it until recently has not even been taught in West Virginia's or Kentucky schools. I wasn't taught about it. I didn't know about it. Oh that is uh that's telling. Yeah. Yeah. Better yeah. Keep no, no, no. I mean we don't we don't know our labor history. And then the other the other person that I've been talking about recently is 
asking people if they've heard of Ella Mae Wiggins and nobody has, you know, and she she was born in Bryson City, um, North Carolina. Wiley Cash's book, The Last Ballad, is mm. about her mm. and that's what you need to get and read it because he does a beautiful job of writing about her. And you are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and you've just heard from two-time James Beard award-winning food writer Ronnie Lundy on why we all eat pinto beans. In her discussion, she made mention of several people like Sherry Castle, a fellow food writer who's chasing down the story of why we all eat pinto beans, and Ronnie referenced Blair Mountain, meaning the Battle of Blair Mountain, and the book that she referenced is entitled Life, Work, and Rebellion in the Coal Fields, The Southern West Virginia Miners, 1880-1922, through by David Corbin. Links to all of my show's guests and topics, including Ronnie, Sherry Castle, and David Corbin's book, are all listed on my website, tennesseefarmtable.com, under that link that says Listen to the Show. These books, yep, you can find all of them with those links and connect to all of them there, along with this fella, East Tennessee-based heirloom seed saver John Koykendall. Here is John with a cute little story about a young fella and his feelings about eating beans almost every meal. But this one pea I have right here is called the Bradham Stock Pea. It dates to 1870 down in Georgia. And that came from uh, this family. And this old fellow was telling me the story he said, when I was about eight years old, every day we had peas. Mom would make that little bowl of peas for me, and I had my piece of cornbread. They might have had some sweet potato or something else. But anyway, he said, one day I rebelled. I sat down and had a big frown on my face, and I looked at that bowl of peas, and took that bowl of peas, and I pushed it away. And Mama asked, what's the matter, son? And I said, I ain't eating no more peas, I'm tired of them. Well, his daddy just looked at him and he said, that's all right, son, you'll eat them tomorrow. <laughs> In other words, that's what it's going to be. <laughs> that was the, the choice. That was the choice. <laughs> that's a good story, John. Well, you know, most of these old peas that we have here, they all have stories because I've gotten them from old timers, people I've known years and years ago. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Century Harvest Farms and Century Harvest Farms Foundation in Greenback, Tennessee. A sustainable farm in East Tennessee producing 100% grass-fed beef and other wholesome farm products. Preservative-free grass-fed charcuterie, preserves, pickles, and jams. Also home to the community-serving, food-insecurity-fighting Century Harvest Farms Foundation. Details at CenturyHarvest.com This is Amelia Guy-Scott from The Welcome Table, and you are listening to The Tennessee Farm Table on East Tennessee's own WDVX. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. When Margaret Carr from the central community of Carter County, Tennessee, thinks of Christmas, her mother's mid-20th century red and green pear salad immediately comes to mind. 
Our mother, Maud Shipley, who came of age during the Great Depression, did not let anything go to waste. When she was young, she was a nanny for a family, and during World War II, she worked at Holston Ordnance in Kingsport making RDX, an explosive, and later on worked at Jess Larkin's Bakery in Elizabethan. She became a stay-at-home mom at age 42 and began a traditional 1950s, 60s lifestyle for us. She had a way of making everyday things seem special, though. She made bunny cakes at Easter, snowman cakes at Christmas, and every year a decorated birthday cake for my sister and me. She grew a garden and canned the produce without the benefit of a pressure canner. August in our house was like a sauna at times. In addition to our garden, we always welcomed gifts of fruits and vegetables from family and friends. I remember getting pears one time, probably from our cousins in Watauga, and of course Mama proceeded to can them. The thing that made them special to us kids was the fact that some of them were red or green. She had added a drop or two of food coloring to make them pretty. These pears were used mostly at Christmas to make pear salad. Pear salad was presented on a small plate with five ingredients. On a bed of lettuce leaves were two or three pears, cottage cheese, mayonnaise, when we discovered Miracle Whip it became Miracle Whip, and grated sharp cheddar. We thought it was the most elegant thing in the world, worthy of the pictures in the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook. She could take very simple ingredients and turn them into masterpieces of flavor and frequently presentation. For Podluck Radio, I'm Fred Sausman. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website, TennesseeFarmTable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee, for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at TheEmmySunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.